I love you, Cecily. You will marry me, won't you? You silly boy. Why, we have been engaged for the last three months. Three months? Yes. It will be exactly three months on Thursday. But how? Well, ever since we heard about Uncle Jack's younger brother, who was very wicked and bad, you, of course, have formed the chief topic of conversation. A man who is much talked about is always very attractive. Darling, and when was the engagement actually settled? On the 14th of February last. I accepted you under this dear old tree here. The next day, I bought this little ring in your name. And this is the little bangle with the true lover's knot I promised you always to wear. It is very pretty, isn't it? Yes, you've wonderfully good taste. And this is the box in which I keep all your dear letters. But my own sweet Cecily, I have never written you any letters. You need hardly remind me of that, Ernest. I was forced to write your letters for you. I wrote three times a week and sometimes oftener. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and this is the Unruly Muse. I love this piece that you picked for us to tease the show today. What jumped out at you about this scene from The Importance of Being Earnest? When we decided on Carnival, the human comedy, Oscar Wilde just jumped into my brain because he was so brilliant at comedy and human nature. I don't know anyone else who can satirize and tell truths at the same time like he does. Very lighthearted, but also deep. Well, I think it's so hilarious that Ernest, who doesn't really exist, is who this woman thinks this man is, Algernon, and that she has created the whole romance in her own mind before she even met him. It's a pretty handy way to handle a relationship. Just take care of both sides and then inform the other when things are pretty close to being wrapped up. That's so perfect. (laughs) In fact, that reminds me of something Wilde said. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. We now move into our first piece being featured on The Unruly Muse this time. It's a song called Wander. Uh, We'll just listen to it, and then Lynn and I will chat it up afterwards. Here we go. Wander. My lovely little Remote control Your buttons lure me There are places to go Through the universe Of pictures and words I'm flying may bring 
changing channels, new Gilligans and mood rings, bright, warm, watching our love will see us through. What was your impulse behind the song? I just had noticed how important this thing had become, this device, and through the device, what we had access to. And and really, it was a time machine of sorts. It was this thing that would be pretty easy to fall in love with. And (laughs) you you could tell that that's what was happening because when you lost it, it really became a big deal. I thought, what if a person fell in love with their remote control and did an ode to it, did a love song to the remote control? Well, I love it because the remote control controls. And certainly during the COVID crisis, people are being very controlled by the remote control. Yes. Where would they be without it? It's sort of um, a conducting baton. I could almost see the narrator in this song doing a slow dance with the remote control in the living room. Yeah, I would love that. Sort of Fred Astaire. Fred, we need Fred yes. Astaire with the remote control. <laughs> with a big five-foot-three-inch remote control in high heels. When we talk about the human comedy being our theme, that comedy almost always has this sad or pitiful element to it. Even though it's funny, it, it almost like it relies on it being tragic in a way, too. It's either whimsical and uh, possibly frightening sometimes, or it's too true and thus uncomfortable. So we laugh so that we can get rid of the discomfort. Mm -hmm. Or there's, in this case, a kind of dreaminess and uh, suspending romance almost on top of it. Another thing that's interesting is what you pick up in your story, Is It Really You?, which we're going to perform today, And that is when a person gets into a situation that they both want to be in and don't want to be in. And, of course, one of those sides has to win. What can you tell us about where this story came from? The excerpt we're going to read is the bulk of the story. But it's it's kind of about that time where you're just innocently minding your own business. In this case of the story, she's in a coffee shop. And a woman at the counter mistakes her for someone else and says, is it really you? And from there, our protagonist, Ellen, sort of loses control of the whole encounter and lets herself be dragged away by this woman. It's kind of like a dream and partly a nightmare. In a way, it relates to the wild because uh, Oscar Wilde in The Importance of Being Earnest is making fun of mores and social niceties. And even in our time when this story was written, we do the same thing. We get into the social convention and we can't get out. 
true. Uh, Algernon, uh, a.k.a. Ernest, doesn't say, what are you, nuts? You know, and then just walk off. He just <laughs> is too, he's too polite. And so what do we put up with in the name of politeness? Well, we'll see a little bit of an example of that okay. in this story. Is it really you? As soon as you turned off onto Pine Street, you entered another world. It was a tiny tributary leading to a dead end. Reality seemed to vanish behind you. Ellen thought longingly of the novel and last bite of scone and the perfectly prepared latte she'd left behind at the coffee shop. Why had she let this Grace Norris convince her that she had to see her garden? Ellen was not fond of gardens in general. They were trudging up the short, steep hill on Pine Street now. There ahead of them was the house. It was high, spiky, painted a blend of beige and olive green like army fatigues. The windows were long and narrow, too, about the size of coffins, Ellen had always thought. She slowed her steps and looked at her watch. Just five minutes had passed. She felt like running away and crying, Help! Her legs felt heavy and exhausted. She turned to face Grace. I'm afraid I'm not feeling very well, Ellen said. I'd love to see your garden. Another day, maybe? Grace appeared not to hear her. Here we are, she said cheerily. Ellen took in the house's four stories. A fire escape ran up on the left side, but only to the second story. From a third story window, a white face stared down at them and then vanished. Had the person winked? Um... Wasn't your husband famous for his roses? I seem to remember that from when I was a kid. Oh, goodness sakes, yes. I used to say, Roger, you don't have ten fingers, but ten green thumbs. Grace beamed, and Ellen managed a tiny smile. She was curious about the face at the window. Who lives here now? Ellen asked boldly. Well, you know, Roger passed on. He was twenty years older than me. I was lucky I had him for twenty years, so it's just me now. I must have misunderstood. I thought you'd said earlier that he was out of town. Grace looked stricken. Did I? I'm still not used to him being gone. Sometimes I forget when I'm talking about him. I... She wiped a tear from her eye. I I'm so sorry, Ellen said after a moment. As Grace touched a tissue to her face, Ellen studied the third floor window. Was Mrs. Norris keeping a hostage in the house? A grandchild who had been abandoned? They walked along a cracked brick walkway from the street and through a wrought iron gate that creaked with age, the house watching above them, a dowager with no sense of humor. The drizzle had stopped, but the gloomy sky and the house cast a gray pall over Ellen. In a few more steps, they reached the back as a riot of color flooded the yard, almost knocking Ellen over with its brilliance. The garden seemed a lost paradise. Everything bigger and plumper and brighter than Ellen had ever seen. She wondered if the gray sky made the blooms pop so, leaning forward to touch a begonia, flame red with green leaves arcing away from the flowers. Is it real? Ellen asked. Grace's laughter was high and light, her tears seemingly forgotten. Of course, if you see it, it's real. Has this always been here? Ellen took in the huge yard, segmented into wedges. Each color had its own area, she realized, arranged in a wheel around a tiered fountain. Grand in the Roman way, with several streams spouting into the air. A sculpture of a plump Cupid in its center. 
The odd thing was that, although it was September and the nights were getting cold, here in the garden the air felt fragrant and warm. A wrought iron fence circled the area as if cordoning off the bounteous growth from the drab slabs of the house's walls. Ellen eased herself down onto a gray stone bench. From where she sat, she didn't see the gate they'd gone through, only the fence. She wondered a second how she might get out. But soon the honeybees buzzing, the fountain murmuring, the flowers flaring open the longer she looked at them, Ellen found that she didn't care. Ah, you're starting to relax, I see, Grace said. Ellen felt stuporous in the growing heat. Let me get you something cool to drink, Grace said, and disappeared. As soon as Grace left, a child stepped out from behind the sculpture in the fountain. Were you looking at us from the window, Ellen asked? The child, with beautiful mocha skin and bright brown eyes, nodded. Do you live here? Ellen found the child's clothes oddly antique. A white broadcloth shirt tucked into velvet breeches and black shoes with buckles. Sometimes, the child said. A boy, Ellen decided, even though the long curly hair and full lips seemed at odds with the clothes. Only sometimes? Ellen, lightheaded in the heat, felt a prickle of fear. The child came near and put a hand on her shoulder. His fingers were cold and his touch delicious. The desire to stand up and leave the garden was fading. Here you are. Grace bustled out of the house to bring Ellen a glass of something. At the sound of Grace, the child slipped behind a bank of hollyhocks, their red and pink blooms waving over his head. Ellen had a moment's fear that the other woman would discover him. Grace held her head up in the air, motionless. The way a dog might do as if sensing a change in the air... So you live here alone? Ellen asked nervously. Sipping the liquid that tasted minty and bitter. She sipped and waited. Grace cocked her head, her face transformed from its genial mask into something withered and sad. I have to go now, Ellen said, relieved to be seeing the garden gate they'd come through. Very far away, like the opposite goal line on a football field. Along with the wooziness she'd felt earlier came a fierce headache. Grace smiled, a sad smile. But I'd like you to meet Roger, and oh, my son is here today, Bertie. But Roger is gone, you said. He passed away, didn't he? Grace reached out her hand, and Ellen took a step back. Behind Grace, the boy appeared and shook his head vigorously, eyes wide. Unsaid words leapt from him like sparks. No, No. get Get away. away. We should tell our beloved audience that the story continues and they're just going to have to read the rest of it if they'd like to know what comes of it. And uh, where can folks see that story and other stories of that type, Lynn? This particular story was published in 2020 in the Scribes Valley Anthology, a literary journal. But I'm working on a collection. I have the, all the stories and I'm just arranging them. The collection is going to be called Archival Footage, and it's a a number of different kinds of stories. So let's hope that um, soonish the whole collection will be available. Very good. And, of course, in the show notes, we'll put the link to that first source that you mentioned there. Well, when we had first talked about this story, you kind of riffed out on why do so many stories that are a little bit speculative have 
fantastical gardens, I remember. Yes, and this is another case of that, and it turns a really dreary experience into something wonderful, and yet at the same time you maintain this eeriness. I almost expect a serpent to slither out somewhere along the way. Yeah. So you picked the garden. Did you pick the garden knowing that you were drawing in this, this heavy tradition? I just had the opening situation that this woman was blissfully enjoying her coffee and treat and her book when this woman approaches her and whisks her away to a street that she knew as a child. She used to walk around that street and play and trick-or-treat, etc. This is a small town. And uh, she had no idea what was behind the house. She had no idea about the Magic Garden. But it's kind of a kid's view of a magic garden in some ways. Yes, it is. And she was still fearful of the place, although in a more adult way, as she walked up to it this time, you could tell that it creeped her out for years. And to discover this wonderful thing behind it, when she'd almost been dragged into that discovery, is a nice and kind of amusing contrast to hear that what she feared and dreaded turned out to be this gorgeous place. Yeah, I think the garden is our imagination that we conjure, you know. And Ellen is um, not a writer. She's an editor, but she loves books. And it's almost like she's wandered off into some fictional landscape that will transform her life in some way. The turning around of those two when they were walking past the house into the yard reminds me of Dorothy coming out of her gray old house after it lands in Oz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very similar revelation. It's beautiful and, and captivating and alluring, and yet it is also of necessity, I suppose, it being literature, a little bit creepy and strange and rife with possibilities. Yeah, it's um, delightful and fantastical, and yet you may not be able to leave such a garden because it's so pleasant We've got a lot more for you on The Unruly Muse. But first, let's take a break and feed the cat. This is Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and we're back on The Unruly Muse. We've got lots of good stuff for you in the second half. I hope you fed the cat. And that music was appealing to you. Red Fire was the name of the group, the duet that did that. They also happened to be my daughter and son, Kelly and Jonathan Modaff. And the second featured song on Unruly Muse this time is a song by Red Fire. Here it is, Meet and Greet.
Well, the way I read those lyrics, they're they're poking fun at going to parties that you don't really want to go to. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. it seems to be the theme of the day that we have yes. <laughs> we have people who are captives in every piece that we are highlighting today. Yes, it's so much fun to watch them from the outside, though, and be amused by their, their I won't want to say suffering, but their predicaments. Right. They're all in some kind of social predicament, and they're not mm-hmm. sure how to get out except by going along with it. Well, that song is uh, appealing to me because it's pleasant in its melody and its rhythm, almost like party music. The stuff a good host will have on in the background has got a little bit of an uplift to it, a little bit of rhythm, but it's not overtaking, and it's pleasant enough. Yeah. And then the the lyrics are very you know languidly sung, and yet they're really sort of bitter on their edge. And it, it is asking that question: What are we all doing here, actually? Yes, and is this really pleasure? Is this party yeah. something that I want to be doing, or do I find myself here, like Ellen in the story before? And that seems to fit into our theme of carnival, because carnival can be both exciting and fun and scintillating, but it can also be grotesque and bizarre. And there's always that seedy fringe to the carnival. That's but that's right. part of the draw. That's part of the draw of the carnival. And strangely, that's the part you walk through, like the outer ring. You have to walk through that to get into the really good stuff in the middle. I'm reminded of um, Alfred Hitchcock's wonderful film, Strangers on a Train, where the climactic scene occurs when they enter this amusement park and really scary things start happening. So the carnival always has the underside, and sometimes it's terrifying, sometimes it's seedy, sometimes it's very sexual, but it kind of turns the world on its head. I'm sitting here trying to think of a single story or film that I know that incorporates the circus, or in particular the carnival, more so the carnival, in a way that isn't somehow underlaid with a problem, you know, either yeah. something scary or a threat or uh, or something creepy or, or supernatural. But uh, I guess a story about going to the carnival and having fun wouldn't be that much fun to read. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm reminded of the similar function of clowns, the clowns in the circus or the clowns at the carnival. They have a sad face, they have a happy face, and sometimes they have a heckling face. Yes. Well, speaking of heckling, what a great unplanned segue to our next piece. Yes. Uh, And that is a wonderful poem by Kelly Yenser. And you can find this poem in a collection of his called The News as Usual from the University of New Mexico Press. Kelly has shared with you a little bit about how he composed this, hasn't he? Yes. uh, The poem is called The Salesman, and here's Kelly's note. My dad, while not exactly a traveling salesman, was a salesman who did quite a bit of driving in Kansas. It happens that I, too, once had a job that involved driving around Kansas and talking to possible clients. I was based in Pittsburgh in the southeast corner of the state, sometimes called the Little Balkans, a riddled landscape of strip mines. So that's Kelly's genesis for this poem, The Salesman. The poem is written in five parts, so we are going to articulate the number of the part that we're reading as we read it. Yes, and it's fitting title in each case. That's right. All right, here we go with the salesman. One, reviews his territory in a meeting. 
My maps always in my head, the roads thin as veins in an eyelid, trickle through the gashed prairie east of here. Heaps of slag, sickly scrub, rusty milo. It's no territory for faint hearts. Last week I clocked a six-point buck near Coffeeville and still made my quota. At this morning's meeting, there's Sheila across the way in her flowery blouse, an intersection of rosy silk and freckled crevice. I'm put in mind of a map of flatland relief, that fine triangle of towns you can trace driving north from the mines, Coyville to Thrall to Climax. Look Look it up. up. Two, talks like everybody else. I talk for a living, and usually it's fun. It gives me something to do, and as a rule, it does no harm. There's a place for everything. I I fit fit in in stories stories as as I I can. can. In this way, people think you're like them. Same as talking about their weather or the way you came. Always. Always. Always tell a joke. I hear the same ones, but I try to hand out fresh ones. I keep a catalog in mind, sorted by location. A bar, a golf course, the gates of heaven. And situation. You're drunk, or driving, or dead. You're talking to a dwarf, or your wife, or God. Three, reviews his territory in the car. Take one hard look. They don't call this country the Little Balkans for nothing. Think about it. The neighbors, Okies and Shomies, don't claim it. People here got no use for each other. Or this land, done for, flat out, ugly as coyotes, slag and tailings, stunted oak, the steam of contagion. On the road, I roll up the windows no matter the season. I don't breathe in. There's good fishing, I'm told, for smallmouth bass in the pools of cold, cold water that seeps in the gashes. Catch what you will. I'd rather eat mudcat. Four. Gets fired. It's hard to say what happened exactly in order. We don't have agendas on Mondays, just the usual muzz and donuts and... Sheila, confusing as usual. But several colleagues said later... That several colleagues had said... They'd had higher hopes for my quota. I do know this. The boss wore mauve, her blouse unbuttoned two from the top, and I know she had darkness between her breasts and creases like knives in her sleeves. Her smile filled her mouth. She said, what's expected is understood... I saw her teeth, and they weren't good. Five. Reviews his career in a bar. You know what? Guess what? I was looking for a job when I got that one. It's a proven fact that people will buy things, need them or not. I'm not worried. In the beginning was the word, and that word was... Sales. Hallelujah. What a deal. I could sell you chip dice for your igloo. I don't need this noise. Shove this route where the light don't shine. Oh, my buckaroos, turn me loose. I'm free. Free at least until the first. And by then, by God... Somebody will need something I can move. Talk about a marvelous satire of the human condition. Yes, and without making it entirely, you know, slaggy and ugly and rust belty, there are these nice little um, things that are enjoyed. Like somehow this person manages to eke out some enjoyment and some appreciation in the midst of a pretty dull routine and an ugly route. 
Yeah, one of my favorite lines is, as he's driving north from the mines, Coyville to Thrall to Climax. Yes, and yes. those are actual towns in Kansas, but they're also very funny that he has to get off on whatever he can. Yes, and that, of course, follows his observation concerning a freckled crevice. Right. You know, a for, the aforementioned freckled crevice. Yes. <laughs> that and you're drunk or driving or dead, talking to a dwarf or your wife or God. Yeah. And I could just, I see the front seat that he spends too much time in. One of the things I love is that because of social media and so much of our lives spent right now on the internet and Zoom, everything is for sale. We, we live in a merchandising era, and this salesman epitomizes that. And he's right. Mm-hmm. By then, somebody will need something I can move. There's always something for sale. What a tough job. It really is, especially yeah. these days when the service that the rep who came, whoever was doing the selling who came, the service that they did for you is something people can do for themselves. Yeah, and I can't help but think of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman when I read this poem, which is one of the saddest American plays ever written about yeah. a man who doesn't keep up with his time. He's, you know, redundant, basically. Yes, there are very few laugh lines in that poem or in that play. That's right. That's <laughs> there are right. Very few laugh lines in that play. But this is of that character, but Kelly manages to turn it into a mainly comical and satirical piece very cleverly, and I appreciate that. I mean, Death of a Salesman was the last word on, you know, the downward spiral. Right. Uh, so this takes that and, and it flips the spiral over and it starts going up again. Yes, and, and this uh, man, this speaker of this poem, is not going to be down and out. He he knows he'll catch the next wave. That's right. And we like that optimism. And that's part of the human comedy, the the tireless, indefatigable hope of the human condition that's us. That's and us. And one of the things I think that we like to do uh, is stick around. And, and I can't remember who was who it was who said this, but you want to stick around to see what happens next. And one of the most exciting things that happens next is gossip and people talking about each other and what they're up to and just getting the dirt. Getting and, that dirt, uh, yes. Why is, why is gossip so popular? Have you thought about it? I think human beings, it's part of the pecking order. They have to talk about each other. They have to find somebody whose life is more difficult than their own. And sometimes it's good gossip. That is, we're talking about stuff we're interested in because we like the people. And we're, it's not really dirt, but we're still dishing. We're still dishing, and yeah. the activity is talking about folks and catching up and telling the stories about other people. And that takes us into our third and final song on The Unruly Muse. And it's called, strangely enough, Good Gossip. Let's hear it. Come on, ain't you been around? 
pumpkin prize went back to Joe. Secrets in his granddad's home. Pop the top and take a sip and catch up on some good gossip. Did you hear over the header bell? Then direct his pickup. Come on, ain't you been around? You've been around this good gossip. In a way, everybody in these stories are in bondage to something. The person in the song who we presume the narrator is talking to says, ain't you been around? Ain't you been around? This is good gossip. Almost as if it was a, an obligation we have now, as if we didn't have enough to do. We have this <laughs> obligation to know all the dirt. Uh, you know, you just, what's the daily dirt? And you better know it. Well, I guess we make communities wherever we are. Even if we're stuck at home, then we're, you know, Zooming and FaceTiming our communities and emailing and whatever else we're doing. And gossip is part of how communities have always operated. And uh, that song celebrates it here at near the end of our show on The Unruly Muse. This time we've been talking about the carnival of the human comedy. And, and yet, uh, Lynn mentioned something earlier about marriage in relation to that Oscar Wilde piece. And that is a little bit of a foreshadowing of our next theme, isn't it? That's right. We're going to be talking about love, marriage, romance in whatever order you want to put those. It's kind of going to be a collage. We'll just paste them up next to each other. Now, before we take off, Lynn, I guess we should once again remind folks where they can get show notes and find out a little bit more about us if they want to. Yes, go to theunrulymuse.net for the show notes and a way to contact us and email us, and we'd love to hear from you. Yes, we would. So this is Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and this is The Unruly Muse. <laughs> ¶¶